This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 5, a section commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. In this portion of the sermon, we're learning about how followers of Christ are called to handle conflict. Last week, Pastor explained how the Pharisees had corrupted the law to create an externally focused view of righteousness. This week, we'll dive more into the lessons we can learn from Jesus. This message was given during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, as you'll clearly understand by some of Pastor's application points. But these points go well beyond the pressures of that time. Conflict occurs often, and how we manage it will make the difference in how our faith is perceived by the world around us. Let's listen to the rest of today's message from Pastor Pierre. But here's more on how we should handle conflicts. After doing that, he presents the lesson. So we saw the corruption, and now we're going to look at the lesson, verses 39 through 42 of Matthew 5. And before we even start looking at that, a good starting point for us to understand the precepts of the majestic Savior is to look at the broader context of Scripture. Because we run the risk of taking these words out of context, and when we do, we come up with a completely unbiblical view. So let's understand the immediate context and what he's talking about here, and also the broader context of Scripture. And the immediate context tells us he's talking about conflict. And again, the rationale for looking at the broader context of Scripture is right here. From the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, when Jesus says, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And what Christ is saying is here, I am not here to correct Scripture. I'm not here to modify Scripture. Nothing, therefore, he teaches contradicts Scripture. And that's true for both Testaments, because they're both equally inspired by God. Second Timothy 3.16 tells us that. So with that in mind, first of all, we need to understand verse 39 in the context. And when Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, I want you to know he is not teaching indifference to evil. Write that down in your Bible. He is not teaching indifference to evil because that what contradicts Scripture. James 4 verse 7 tells us that we are to resist the devil. So right there in the scripture, we are to resist the devil. Obviously, what Christ means here is not that we are to be indifferent to evil. Furthermore, God expects the church to confront evil, to confront sin. By preaching the truth, for example, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So that's a, a way to confront and to resist evil. And furthermore, the church is called to discipline the sinning believer, to confront sin in the church. Consider what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Your indifference to sin is not good is what he's saying. And he goes on to say, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. And in verse 12, he goes on to say, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. I mean, you don't get any clearer than that. He's saying, remove, exclude the unrepentant sinner from the church. We are to resist sin. We are to confront sin. Secondly, I want you to know that in verse 39, the beginning of the verse, Jesus is not prohibiting people from reporting crimes. 
We are called upon to speak the truth. And to, if we are called upon to testify against the suspect, we are to speak the truth. Remember Matthew 5 verse 37, Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. But furthermore, he is not prohibiting you from intervening. I don't know that I can not do anything if I see someone being abused on the streets. We are to intervene. He does not prohibit military action of self-defense. And furthermore, church, we need to understand this very clearly. Christ is not asking you to bypass your God-given natural instinct of self-preservation. Okay? Christians are blessed to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, he says in Matthew 5, verse 10. But there is no particular virtue in pursuing persecution, in wanting to be abused. That's, that's sickness. Okay? That, that is something that needs to be treated. In other words, subjects of the kingdom of heaven should not pursue persecution, but we should endure it if it's inevitable. Now, we don't run from it. We don't avoid it. It's part of being a believer in Christ. But I want you to know that when he talks about do not resist an evil person, he is speaking in the context of retaliation, interpersonal conflict. In other words, do not retaliate. That's what he's talking about. In, in that context, retaliation is a no-no. Why? Because we remember the words of Paul. The apostle, do not pay evil with evil. Instead, believers should, by all means, get out of harm's way. Avoid the abuser, of course. Report the crime. Confront the sin, obviously. But ultimately, you must trust the Lord to act on your behalf. And that's what he's talking about here. Why? Because, again, Paul reminds us in Romans 12, verse 19, that God says, I will repay. Vengeance is mine. In other words, his standard, church, is much more effective, is higher than yours and mine. Believers should not take matters into our own hands. Whether we're talking about a crime or whether we're talking about a sin committed against us, we confront the sinner, we tell them, listen, you have sinned against me and I have forgiven you already, but we leave it at that. We don't perpetuate a cycle of vendetta or revenge because that is not from God. You understand that? That's your sinful nature, my sinful nature. We have to exercise self-control not to employ these mechanisms. And Jesus elaborates on this lesson here, on what he says in verse 39, do not resist an evil person. He elaborates on that now by giving us four examples. Three of them are illustrations. One is more of a, of a command. And each one represents one principle of how God expects us to handle conflicts. So we want to, again, pay very close attention here. This is why I said in the beginning that this is the most challenging portion of the Sermon on the Mount, church. We know this because these principles require us, they demand, they call us to relinquish our rights for the sake of a good testimony. Our dearly held rights that our ancestors fought for. Sometimes, my friends, God calls us to relinquish those rights because we're citizens of heaven first, if you're a believer in Christ. Think about that. Isn't that not what Jesus has done, friend, for you and for me? Didn't he leave heaven, which was his right, his was prerogative of being a member of the Trinity? He left heaven to become one of us here for what purpose? To die for you and for me. So by giving up our rights, we are not neglecting, dishonoring our past church. We are honoring the one who died for us because we're being imitators of Christ. So let's look at those four illustrations here. The first one illustrates the principle of meekness. Verse 34, the second half of the verse, illustrates the principle of meekness. Okay, how do we know that? Because it's in the context. One of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Also, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. But here's, I want you to know, just like he did in verse 29, Jesus uses hyperbolic language. 
Again, he's using a figure of speech, an absurd proposition designed to shock. Okay, when he says, turn to the other cheek, he does not expect you to be assaulted passively. You have reflexes that are meant to protect your vital body parts. So, so he's presenting a figure of speech here that means this. A slap on the right cheek would be a backhanded hit by someone who was right-handed. That's what he means. And that would be more insulting than anything else. It would create more insult than injury, an affront to your dignity. It's like spitting on your face. But of course, if you're attacked physically, don't retaliate. Don't stay there, but don't retaliate. That's what the principle is. But primarily, he's talking about an insult. And what he's saying is this. When people insult you, don't return the insult. Why? Because you're a Christian, my friend, and you will be insulted for the rest of your life. Precisely because you belong to Christ, because you hold on to biblical truth, you will be insulted more than if you were not a Christian. Even non-Christians get insulted from time to time, but because of your identification with Christ, you will be insulted constantly. People will call you all kinds of names. They will shun you. They will ignore you because you want to uphold biblical truth. Even Christians will do that to you. When you uphold biblical truth, when you want to live a life that honors God and you follow biblical principles, Christians even will criticize. That's called friendly fire. And you will be insulted. But listen, you are blessed. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. You are in a state of blessedness. Happiness that defies understanding. True happiness according to God. And Christ is saying, well, you shouldn't find strange that people insult you because you are already blessed. And therefore, your state of blessedness should override everything else. Even when you're insulted, let them insult you. Let them assault your character. Don't move a finger to defend your character. Why? Because God knows your character. And what he says about you is this. You are blessed if you're a believer in Christ. You're a Christian. You are blessed beyond your ability to compute. And that's what matters. His opinion about you is the only opinion that matters. I mean, it's the primary one, of course. I, I care about what my wife thinks about me, of course. And I care about what my flock thinks about me, of course. But ultimately and primarily, I'm after God's approval. Here's a second principle. We looked at the principle of meekness in verse 39 with one of the illustrations. The other one is the principle of selflessness, verse 40. Now, the second illustration here, Jesus is proposing a hypothetical scenario. Okay, I want you to know this is a fictitious court case that he says here. It involves potential litigation. Once again, it's important for us to determine what Christ is not saying. Otherwise, we will make great mistakes precisely because we live in a litigious society. Frivolous lawsuits happen every week. People are sued for the most trivial reasons. Now, if we misinterpret Jesus' words, we're doing just like what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing and Jesus accuses them of doing. And it'll lead us to the wrong conclusion that believers are supposed to settle out of court every time they are sued. That's not the case. Well, let's see what he means here. He does not provide any more information about this fictitious case. I want you to know this is a literary device that he's using. There's no more information about this fictitious case, only that there is a potential plaintiff that has yet to go to court. See, he, if he wants to take you to court, he says, but presumably that person has a legitimate claim. That's, that's the point. We need to understand this. Presumably, that person has a legitimate claim. He's not talking about frivolous lawsuits. He has a legitimate case. And the reason we know this is because the injured party here in this case wants some sort of a guarantee of restitution from the defendant, namely the shirt. Well, how do we know that? From Exodus 22, verse 26. The tunic, the undershirt, would serve as a pledge. Listen to this. Exodus 22, verse 26, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. 
So that was common practice. And Jesus is saying here, and here's how we can apply this principle. Again, it's simple to understand, but hard to implement because it demands humility. Something that doesn't come naturally for you and for me is something we can't accomplish without divine intervention. And here's the point. If your opponent at law has a legitimate claim, settle the dispute before it escalates. That's the point. If someone says, and it's a legitimate claim, and says, you owe me money, or whatever the case is, make it right before the case needs to escalate. Make it right before the person has to go to court and and not trust in your Christian character. That's what he's saying here. Your excellence in virtue should be so high that we'll say, we don't need to do this. Here, let me pay you what I owe you, and then some more. That's what Jesus is saying. Let me pay you what I owe you. You have a legitimate claim. Let me give that to you and then some more for the trouble. I'm sorry for the trouble. And that's what what he's talking about here. So you go a step beyond restitution in the name of the Prince of Peace. Give your opponent at law his demand and then some more just because you love Christ. And you say, listen, you know, I don't want this to come between us. And we'll give you, we'll look at a few examples here in a moment. But you may be thinking now, you say, Pastor, I thought that the law of retribution says we're not supposed to overcompensate. And here you're saying, Christ is saying overcompensate your opponent at law. Yes, the point is the victim should not overcompensate. But if the offender voluntarily does that, that is nobility of character. That is Christ's likeness, my friend. That's the goal for you and for me. Don't wait for someone to have to take you to court if they have a legitimate claim. Or if they don't have a legitimate claim, then yeah, don't be abused. But think about being a peacemaker. It demonstrates a nobility of character. Let me give you an example of that. Zacchaeus. You remember him, the wee little man? You remember that song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and so forth? Well, remember, he told Jesus that he would repay fourfold the people that he defrauded. You remember that? And Jesus didn't stop him. That's nobility of character. Let me give you another example. Abraham, Genesis 13. His servants were having fights with the servants of Lot to the point where the patriarch of the Jews, Abraham, told to his nephew, listen, let's not let that happen, okay? You have first pick of the land. I'm going to let you choose first. You choose here, I'll go there. So as to promote peace. Friends, that is nobility of character at the highest level. Why? even makes it more significant because the land was Abraham's by divine decree. He understood that whatever Lot picks now, the land will be mine anyway. So you can choose, you can have preference because my friendship with you is more important than profit. I value the relationship more than I value convenience. I value the relationship more than I value profit. You mean that much to me, is what he's saying to Lot. And friends, what an example for us. Not every one of uh, Abraham's example we can follow, but this one we can. And remember, the land was his by divine promise. And likewise, my friend, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Paul says to the Ephesians, everything is yours by inheritance because you are a son and a daughter of God. So give the other person the preference. Give him more than he wants, than his demands. If he has a legitimate claim, why? Because everything is yours anyway. You are already in a state of blessedness that you can't even compute. So a minor inconvenience will be, to, you know, if anything is going to hurt your ego, but you do it anyway. Because that's nobility of character. That's how you settle conflicts. There's no more conflict when you do that. The problem with with conflict is when you want to keep escalating. You did this to me, I'll do that to you. You call me this name, I'm going to call you those two names. Oh yeah, you did that to me? Take this, take that. That's not how believers should operate. And I'm not talking about fist fights. 
Uh, I'm talking about murdering people at the heart, offending people, insulting people back, actively or passively. You can insult people with your silence. I hope you know that. Now here's the third principle. We looked at the principle of selflessness that Jesus is telling us here on how to deal with conflict. The third one is the principle of sacrifice, verse 41. We may not be familiar with this illustration, but the original audience knew exactly what Jesus was talking about here. They knew exactly what he meant. And here's the reason. In that time, Roman soldiers had legal permission to commandeer citizens to carry their equipment. They had legal permission to do that, to sort of conscript people to do them a favor. This was a strange law, but here's an example of this. Matthew 27, verse 32 tells us that Roman soldiers forced Simon the Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross to the crucifixion site. That's an example of that, of that law being applied. Well, there's no modern equivalent for this, but the closest would be something like an IRS agent stopping you at the freeway and saying, you're going to change your plans and you're going to take this package for me to the nearest IRS office. Now, we wouldn't like that, obviously. It would be a strange law. But evidently, the limit here that Roman soldiers could commandeer people to do was one mile. That was the limit. One Roman mile, 5,800 feet. Now, this law would obviously infringe upon the liberty of citizens, of course. Although they were not free like we are free today. But it would create conflict in the form of resentment. The people would resent their government. But what Jesus is saying is, forget your freedom for a moment. Forget your rights. Double up for the sake of a good testimony. And that's the principle, church. Double up for the sake of a good testimony. You're required to go one mile, go two. Why? So that that soldier may have access to hear the gospel from you. Now, we just say, Pastor, I don't think so. This will lead to all kinds of abuse, perhaps. But remember, the Lord will repay. And the opportunity to tell that soldier, you know what? I'm going to do this, not because I agree with this law, but I'm going to do this because I love my Lord. And my Lord says, do it. And my Lord says, Go twice, double up, go the extra mile. That's where we get the expression. And therefore, that's the application of that principle. But let's bring it back. Let's bring it close to home. Here's how we can apply this principle. Our state government has asked us to limit our church activities because of the coronavirus to protect people. Even though it is our constitutional right to assemble and we have a mandate from the church and those lockdown orders have been challenged in many places in different states here, We can say this, our hard attitude should demand us to say this, of course, of course we can sacrifice our activities temporarily for the sake of others, unless you tell us to lock down permanently, or unless you tell us to stop preaching the Bible, precisely because we know this is only temporary. It's taking longer than we would like, but our hard attitude should be, of course I do that for the sake of others, to protect other people from getting infected. Of course, it shouldn't even be debated. Furthermore, let me bring this a little closer to home. Marion County just made use of face masks mandatory while we are inside establishments, public establishments, restaurants, or churches. Our hard attitude should be this, church, and listen to me carefully. Our hard attitude should be this. Of course I will wear a mask. Give me two. You can only wear one at a time, but you can say, of course I will do that. That's not a problem. It shouldn't even be debated. Why? Because I love the Lord. And because I want no conflict. I run away from conflict. The only reason I should engage in conflict is to protect the truth. Is to preach the truth. But other than that, yes, of course I will do that. Is, is it strange? Perhaps you've read a thousand different articles that speak a thousand different things. It doesn't matter. Do it for the sake of the Bible. You understand that? Do it for the sake of your Lord. For the principle of sacrifice. Because again, 
your Savior has done that to you? I mean, you can't even wear a mask when it's, it's, it's a law now? Even though it's a strange law? Well, Jesus addresses a strange law here from the Roman government. They're asking to go a mile, go two. So that's the principle of sacrifice. Here's the principle of generosity. And we'll end with this one, chapter 5, verse 42. Again, this is not an illustration per se. It's more along the lines of of a command. And this last verse here, uh, we need to understand again what Jesus is not saying so that we cannot use this verse to justify thoughtless, unplanned giving. That's not the point, okay? Because you will do damage if you just give to anybody who asks you. If you don't believe what I'm saying, just go downtown Salem and start handing out $20 bills. And that's not the point here because that's a thoughtless way of giving and you're doing more than You're not really helping by doing that. Jesus is simply highlighting the virtue of generosity in the form of eagerness to meet a need, okay? Let's understand that it's an eagerness to meet the need precisely in the context of conflict, Okay? Because he's talking about conflict and the promotion of peace here and how to avoid conflict, how to promote peace, how not to pay evil with evil, we need to understand this last verse in the context of Proverbs 25, verse 21, which says this, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And that's the principle here. Now, subjects of the kingdom of heaven are to extend benevolence even to our most militant critics, even to people who slap us in the cheek and insult us for what we believe in, even people who want to take us to court because we don't want to bake their cakes, whatever the case is. We show benevolence and generosity to them. We go beyond not just retaliating. We meet their needs. Let me give you an example of that. Samaritan Spurs. You've heard of that institution. Franklin Graham is the president of Samaritan Spurs. They set up makeshift hospitals in New York in the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic under heavy criticism. People were calling him all kinds of names. People were criticizing them left and right, but yet they're meeting needs. And that is an example of how a Christian should act, subjects of the kingdom of heaven. We don't retaliate the insults. We continue to meet needs. Now, obviously... The greater example of that is Jesus Christ. The greatest example of that is Christ. When he was being nailed to the cross, he prayed for his oppressors. Why? Because he knew of their immediate need, the need for salvation, the need to be forgiven by God. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Here's a secondary example of that. It's below Christ, obviously, because it's from a man, but it's Stephen, the first martyr of the church. As he was being stoned to death, He prayed for his oppressors and saying, Lord, lay not that to their charge. Forgive them. And that is, my friend, nobility of character. That is true spirituality. That is true religion. We need to understand that. True religion is not coming to church every Sunday, checking in and out. If your heart is not transformed, my friend, true religion, the righteousness that surpasses all understanding, is a transformed heart, is a heart that desires to promote peace, and a heart that is willing to restrict our fleshly tendency of retaliation in order to honor God. And he has given us an unprecedented time to uphold this standard. Let's not miss this one, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus will elaborate on these principles more in the next paragraph. And what we learn today is this. The way to do this is we don't do it like the world does. We don't give in to our temptation to retaliate and to be vindictive and to engage in personal vendettas. And we apply the principles taught by Christ and exemplified by him. Meekness, selflessness, sacrifice, and generosity. Now, let's conclude with this. 
Don't be distraught by what you see on the news today. Be alarmed, of course, as I'm alarmed. We are surprised by what we're seeing on TV and the, the recent events in our country and around the world. But be encouraged, my friend, because God is giving our generation a unique opportunity to be Christ-like and to demonstrate these principles here. Look no further than your own community, than our own reality here. Principles to demonstrate meekness, selflessness, sacrifice, and generosity. Do we speak out against evil? Of course we do. We are to confront sin and confront evil, but in the context of gospel proclamation, because what people need the most is to be reconciled with God, okay? It's not enough to simply don't be like the looters, don't be like the riots, because at the moment we go... <laughs> Thank God that I'm not like those guys. We are engaging in pharisaical righteousness. Our prayer should be, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And when we do this, church, we are, we are being Christ-like and we're promoting peace. We are not paying evil with evil, but we are showing to the world the standard that God expects. Because our society, not just here in our country, but around the world, is far, far, far from God's ideal. It's your opportunity and mine to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world and to shine the light of Christ. And if you're not a believer in Christ, you need to come to Him today. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not yet a subject of the kingdom of heaven, today is the day for you to take care of that. The Bible says you believe in Jesus in your heart and you repent of your sin and you trust in Him for your salvation. And He will transform your heart from the inside out. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.